Anybody want to run next door and ask the straight one to stop cutting onions first thing in the morning? I'm sure that's what that was, right? Good morning, everyone. So we are in John chapter 8, and uh, today is going to be a little bit of a different message. Usually we try to just walk through a passage, and uh, we did this, this passage last week. Today is going to be kind of a collection of ideas on John chapter 8, and specifically verse 12. We'll do some announcements, and then we'll pray, and then we will we'll get going. Next Sunday is uh, Fifth Sunday, uh, so we have potluck, communion, uh, all those good things, chili cook-off. All right. So just come. Doesn't matter if you can bake something, bring something, doesn't matter. Just come. Nobody has ever left here starving, ever. There's so much good food, so please uh, make sure you plan on coming for next week. We'll have uh, the kids doing some great stuff for, uh, for Fifth Sunday. Then our next food bank is November 12th and 13th, and uh, if you can plan on helping out with that, please. We do have uh, the Bible studies going on on Tuesday and Wednesday evenings, which is fantastic. And then uh, ministry, so we've got um, all kinds of stuff. So let's, let's pray. We can pray over our, our ministries as we go. Um, if you are a visitor, please remember the little tear-off tab at the, the back, or if you have a prayer request uh, for, um, for us as well, just tear that little guy off, fill that out, and uh, put that in the offering box at the back of the church. I can assure you that we will pray over that. Father, thank you for another beautiful day in western Colorado drove in today seeing the, the fog over the river and the sunshine, feeling the, the coolness in the air, the warmth on my back. I can't help but marvel at the work of your hands. Father, we lift this day up to you. We lift this time up to you. Please open our hearts and open our minds that we could receive you. Thank you for worship this morning. It's not really much better to do than to uh, to worship you. Father, we do lift some things up to you. We've got um, Richard and Kathleen going down to, uh, to the Apache tribe. Please be with them. We lift up Thailand and Myanmar to you. As they continue in, in strife, we lift up Afghanistan to you. It seems that every day there are fresh horrors to behold. We pray for your protection, for you to surround those wonderful people that are your masterpiece, Father, that are uh, being trod on by their, by their brothers and sisters. Please be with them. And we uh, also pray for, uh, for our food bank. We've got a food bank coming up here in a couple of weeks that you have been so faithful in providing for us, Father. Thank you. Please help us to be a ministry that meets the, the needs of our community. That, yeah, as we would go through today, we would draw closer to you. We ask all of that in the loving name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So like I said we are in um, John chapter 8. And we're going to focus on verse 12, but I will read verses 12 through 30. The same ones that we did last week. It says, 
When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. He says, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? He said, You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. That he, by the way, is added on in the English to to make the grammar correct. If you were to read that in in the Greek or the the Hebrew, it says, I am. So if you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father. He says, you will know, and this is the same thing again, he says, you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him, even as he spoke, and he believed in him. So last week we started off um, with our history portion, with our setting in the temple where they were doing this. We talked about the Feast of the Tabernacles. We talked about the ceremonies, the drink libation, where they would go to the go to the Pool of Siloam and get the water and the gold pitcher, and they would pour the water into the silver basins at the base of the altar. And it was there when Jesus said, I am the living water. We talked about the, the massive menorahs, these huge four-bold lamps that, that stood in the court, of the, rim and, the, the court of women at the temple and how they would fill them with oil and would use old priestly robes, the robes that had been worn out as the wicks for these lamps. And these lamps would be lit each night of the festival, and how it was said that not a courtyard in Jerusalem was dark when they were burning. And it's there where Jesus stood and said, I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Last week I focused on some truths about existence. That there must be darkness, spiritual darkness, and there must be light, spiritual light. We illustrate the truth about light and darkness with both scripture and with current events. Then I talked about the responses to what Jesus said, the arrogant denial, the self-righteousness of the leaders, the fence-sitters like the guards, and then we get to verse 30, which is the great verse. It says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. There's some plain observations to be made, and I said this point is to meditate on that saying, on the, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk, walk in darkness. 
because he says he says that I am water, I am the, the, the living water, I am the bread of life, and I am the light. Those are basic staples of life. Everybody drinks, everybody eats, everybody, even if you're blind, can feel the warmth of the sun and know when it's nighttime out. So how could you not know? Why does Jesus have to say, I am the living water? Why does Jesus have to say, I am the bread of life? Why does Jesus have to say, I am the light of the world? It should be obvious. No one looks at a loaf of bread on the, on the counter and doesn't recognize it. Nobody smells the, the, the fresh baking bread and doesn't know what it is. No one looks at water, doesn't know what water is. Nobody drinks from a glass and doesn't know what water is. No one stands outside in the sunlight and doesn't feel its warmth. So why does Jesus have to tell us these things? The answer is simple, that we are spiritually dead. A dead thing cannot smell or taste bread. A dead thing cannot feel the cool, refreshing drink of water. A dead thing cannot bask in the warmth of the sun. A dead thing is dead and can only decay. But there must be an opportunity to move from death to life. There must be an opportunity to drink, an opportunity to eat, an opportunity to follow the light. Otherwise, Jesus and John and thousands, millions of Christians since then have been wasting their time. And I don't believe that is the case. I don't believe God ever wastes time. It is the most precious gift that he gives us. Instead, Jesus invites us to the table. He invites us to eat and to drink and to warm ourselves in the light. He invites us to follow him. Whatever the preconditions may be, clearly the door is not closed. It is not too late Anyone who hears these words has the opportunity to follow Christ. But following Christ has costs and it has rewards. And not following Christ has costs and has rewards. A lot of today's message, I'm going to use negatives to contrast with the positives. So we're going to start off with a negative. Not following Christ is very easy. The road is wide. The path is very easy to find, very easy to follow. And quite frankly, most people are on it. You get to do whatever you want. You can be the God in your world. I do recommend following the laws of man unless you want to end up in prison, but really, your imagination is the limit to the depravity you can find. You can turn your lusts however you wish, the Bible says you can invent ways of finding evil. The cost is an eternity in hell, an eternity separated from God in burning darkness. Verse 23, he says, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. 
following Christ has costs and has rewards. The cost is you must give up everything of this world. You must forsake, you must walk away from the riches and the comforts of this world, the praise, the honor, the glory of this world in order to follow Christ. When I was thinking about this message, this is what was on my heart. What I did not want was to have anyone to not understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it really means to commit to following Christ. Because these folks that are standing there are religious folks. They're, they're going to church. They're celebrating the festivals. They're giving all this stuff. They're going through all of the processes. They have the head knowledge. A lot of these guys are teachers of the law. They have the scripture down. And yet, Jesus tells them, you aren't making it. That's a heavy thing for someone to say. And I would be remiss if we didn't take time to talk about the difference between those folks and the people that are, that are making it, that are on the correct path. And it's a, it's a question of heart. It's a question of our affection. It's a question of our feeling. It's a question of our love and of our desire. And we're going to beat this to death with several different pictures. But it's important. Because you must give up everything of the world. You must forsake. You must walk away from the riches and the comforts of this world. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 16, 24 through 27 say, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. You say, okay, I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. I give my life to Christ. I think most of us in here, I don't know of anyone in here that hasn't been baptized. If you'd like to be baptized, write it on the tear-off tab and we'll put it there. We'll do it right away. No reason to wait. Water's still warm. Kind of. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13 say, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's what we do when we're baptized. We declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. This next part, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I would underline for later in the message, verses 12 and 13. It says, declare with your mouth and believe in your heart. 
out of your mouth and out of your hands is where the fruit of your faith comes. What is in the wellspring of your heart will come bubbling out of your life, out of your mouth and out of your deeds. James 2, verses 18 through 26 says this exact thing. It says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What he's talking about there is head knowledge. There's a lot of people who have head knowledge about God. There's a lot of people who think they have head knowledge about God. This is the concern right here, is that there's a lot of people that really think they know about God, and yet they have not undergone a life-transforming change in their heart. This is what I'm really worried about. It says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is dead? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So the question is, I've made this confession, I've I've been baptized, how do I live? What is tomorrow like for me? How do I make sure that this seed of the word that is planted in me is not on the path, is not on the rocky soil, is not choked out by the weeds? That that seed of the word that you have been given is in the good soil where it will bear fruit. See, when you were baptized, you said something. You said you took Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. We're going to save the wedding analogy for the last analogy. You were washed by the water and raised to a new life in Christ. Those words and those deeds were a commitment from what was in your heart. Hopefully, you wanted nothing more in life than to follow Christ. So we're going to look at these ideas with some different pictures. And all we're doing is we're just turning the scripture just a little bit, looking at the same picture from a slightly different perspective. So when we usually talk about sin, the way I usually talk about sin is as missing the mark, as aiming for a goal and falling short. I found, heard this from John Piper this week. I think this is a great description of sin. Sin is a core preference for anything other than Christ. In your heart, in your desire, in your longing, for anything other than Jesus. John Piper says, it means that sin is an internal displacement of the glory of God in our affections, in our valuing, in our treasuring with anything else. Sin is a movement, not of the body, but of the heart toward preferring anything to God. I didn't know how far to go because the problem is that our, our culture has moved wildly away from godly living. And 
it's hard to know how hard to, to beat that drum about what godly living looks like. Because part of following Jesus is repentance, confessing the sin, the things in our lives that have displaced God, that we have treasured above God. And the idea is, you know, repentance, it means a reorientation of the compass of our hearts to get on not just any path, but to get on the right path to move in the direction of God. The opposite of this, the negative of this, is in Romans 1.23. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. The negative example we have in our scripture is the Sadducees and the Pharisees and those Jews at this feast. These are obedient, church-going people who think they are saved. And Jesus says, You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So clearly, there is something missing in their faith. Clearly, knowledge of Scripture, attending synagogue, obeying the law, keeping the Sabbath, and keeping festivals were nothing without that internal desire, that longing, that treasuring of God. And notice what Jesus says. He says, pursuit, following, desiring, treasuring God leads to Christ. And the same thing, pursuit and following and desiring and treasuring Christ leads to God. That's what he says in verse 19. If you knew me, you would know God. If you know God, you would know me. See, we kind of have a wide swath that we can cut. To an extent, we can be off on our theology. We can be off on our understanding of Scripture, but only to an extent. But we cannot be off in our heart, in our longing, in our desiring, in our treasuring for Jesus. And I say to an extent because the example is right there in the crowd and the leaders. They had some wrong theology that led them to deny Jesus. And that's where the rubber meets the road. If our Bible knowledge, if our scripture knowledge, if our theology leads us to denying Christ, that's where we have gone off the rails. It's in 727 and 752. It says, we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Well, they're, they're wrong in their scripture. 752, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They're wrong. Several prophets came out of Galilee. So we're going to take an aside here. We're going to step and look at a couple of cults. And the reason we're going to do that, like I said, is to use the negative, how our wrong scripture can lead us away from Christ. The technical term, it doesn't really matter that these guys follow. It's called replacement or fulfillment theology. You don't need to know that, but you'll know these examples. We're talking about Muslims. Muslims believe that Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son, was the heir to God's promise. They replace Isaac with Ishmael. Therefore, the sons of Ishmael, not Isaac, are the true heirs. That is why Muslims hate Jews. They believe they stole their birthright, their inheritance. It was not the sons of Ishmael that should have been given the Holy Land. That is why the Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the Temple Mount. That's why they built it there. Ishmael is the replacement for Isaac. 
the Muslim is the replacement for the Jew. That's what they believe. Think about our Mormons. They believe there was a lost tribe of Jews and black Jews, and they were led to where? To a new holy land in the new world. Think about Joseph Smith was led to these golden tablets by the angel Maroni, and they they translated the tablets, tablets into the Book of Mormon. The idea is that Mormons live in the true holy land, and that followers of Smith follow the new updated promises of God for salvation. Mormons are the replacement for Christians and Jews. They are the true descendants. They have the birthright as God's chosen people. A relatively new group that has come on the scene is called the Hebrew Israelites. They believe that the people who call themselves Jews are actually descendants of Esau, not Jacob. They believe that the real Jerusalem is in Africa, not in the Middle East. And they have a chart that they can tell you if where you were born, which of the 12 tribes of Israel, and where you were born indicates what tribe you are from. But the key to each of those replacement theologies is what? What are they playing on? They're playing that this desire that each one of us has, right? We're all looking for things. We feel lost. We feel worthless. We feel like we lack purpose. And what are they saying? They're saying, oh, I know exactly where you're from. I know exactly who you are. I know your inheritance. I know where you're headed. They take this theology to give people hope. Each one of them are giving them a different replacement for true theology. And if they don't know their Bibles, they can be less. They can be left and left to the point where they miss Christ, where they deny Christ when he speaks to them. You see the danger of bad theology? That's the, the point that I'm trying to illustrate. And each one of those, they give us an us versus them. We talk about politics today. It plays on one of the most base things that we have in our hearts, an us versus them, a good guy versus bad guy, right? It tears us apart, divides us. That's what these religions do as well. They create an us versus them. If they aren't Mormon... They're condemned to hell. If you're not Muslim, right? If you, if you are Muslim, if you're a true descendant, then you are the people of God. But anybody else, they can convert and be a slave or they can die. The Hebrew Israelites, they're the true heirs. And they play off of this strange understanding of Deuteronomy 32, 26. They say, oh, well, the reason why we didn't, we lost our heritage is that we were we were under a curse. It says in there that I would said I would scatter them and erase their name from human memory. That's why we don't know, you know, where our true and now we understand. We've come out from underneath the curse in Deuteronomy thirty two twenty six. And now we are reclaiming our inheritance. However, go back up. Go back up to what I said in underlining those verses, underlining verses twelve and thirteen. Right? It says, uh, if I got it here, I have to go way back up in my notes. It says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who cares what your de descendants are? Who cares what your family is? Who cares what race you are? If you know that verse you know it doesn't matter. But if you don't know that, 
It can lead to you denying Christ or being falling prey to, to false teaching. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 say, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That wipes out three religions right there. If you just know that verse. So why do we have BYU? Think about it. Why does it exist? But do you see how if we are too loose on our doctrine, we can be loose to a point. We can, you can be Abraham. You can be the thief on the cross and still have genuine saving faith. But being wrong, being lazy in our scripture can lead us away from Christ or it can put stumbling blocks in our path to Christ. And those stumbling blocks can be big enough that we deny Christ when he speaks in our lives. Christ is standing in the temple speaking to these folks. And he tells them, you don't know me and you don't know God. But the hope is in verse 30 because many, many believed. It says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. And our message is counter to materialism. Materialism meaning clinging to anything of this world, valuing, treasuring anything of this world. Our mission is to proclaim the answers to these questions that everyone has. Who am I? You are a child of God. Why am I here? Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created through him and for him. Now, don't, don't get this wrong, because God has no needs. The triune God is in perfect relationship. He doesn't have a, a deficit or a lack or a function that you must fill. God created you because it, in, it is in his nature to create. He is a creator. When he looked out at the world, he thought the world needed you. He looked at this beautiful tapestry of creation. And I've been reading this book by Eric Metaxas. It's all about science and, and the size of the universe. I don't know how much to share. you got to read it if you get an opportunity. The things that you learn about uh, fine-tuning in the universe are absolutely incredible. One of the, the points he makes, and I did not know this, and that's why he wrote the book. He's like, man, there's so much of this science stuff that hasn't been getting out. So the current belief is that if the mass, so think about the entire universe, how big it is, billions of galaxies, all this. If the mass of the universe was off by the weight of one dime, life could not exist. If it was one dime lighter, it would have expanded too quickly. If it was one dime heavier, it would have collapsed in on itself. Okay. But in this masterpiece of creation, he believed that you would make it complete and good. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were made on purpose with a purpose. And when we are born again in Christ Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters, heirs, children of God. I have a slideshow to put up here. Do you know what a waste is? Do you know how to waste something? Go ahead and put the slides up. Back if you got a second there. Imagine you buy a car, this car. That's a Porsche 959. Limited edition. They made less than a thousand of them between 1980 and 1991. They have some parts left over. I think for like two or three million dollars, you could get one. If you, you know, on the low end, if you, you know, want, there's a lot of them that were raced. There's a lot of them that are famous, so they go for more than that. But imagine you get a hold of one of those. And all you do is you leave it in the garage. Maybe wipe it with a cloth diaper every once in a while. Show it off to your friends. Has it ever fulfilled its true purpose? Has it? It's one of the fastest cars on the planet. One of the most advanced supercars of its time. It's rare. It's extremely valuable. You go and you take it and you park it in the garage. You never drive it. You never get behind the wheel. You never start the engine and drive. And when it goes to the scrap heap, and it will eventually go to the scrap heap, did it fulfill its purpose? And if you guys go out and buy a, a major appliance like a dishwasher or a clothes washer and then not use it, like not put dishes in it or not put clothes in it, maybe you just use it as a shelf. Nice place to keep the books. That's a waste, right? That would be a waste. The person that was in the factory that manufactured that dishwasher, that clothes washer, they wanted you to have clean clothes or clean dishes. That's what they wanted you to have. That's why they spent the materials. That's why the, the metal was mined. That's why the, the plastic was pressed. That's why all that stuff was done, so that you could have clean dishes or clean clothes. What about a Bible that never gets read? See, a life that is wasted is one that never fulfills its designed purpose. All things have been created through him and for him. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You exist that God the creator might be displayed. That, like the statue of David or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or the Mona Lisa, that people might see you, know you, experience you, and marvel at the creator. That God would be glorified, magnified, exalted in you. But all of that starts with a commitment by you in your heart and confessed from your mouth. Your baptism and confession of faith are your commitment to a life that magnifies, glorifies, and exalts Christ. We have our last picture. We're going to go to Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and this is a negative. Don't turn it into your Bible, because I'm doing something funny with the Scripture. 
This is a negative picture, but it's a picture of God's love. So I'm going to read this. This is not pleasant. So remember that Hosea was called to, uh, to marry a, a prostitute and have children with her as this illustration of what was going on with the nation of Israel. But listen to this. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. It says, Say of your brothers, my people and of your sisters, my loved ones. Those are the name of his two kids, by the way. So his two kids, one of them was named not my people and one of his other kids was named not my loved. So when he says this in verse 2, he's building a contrast. It says, Say of your brothers, my people and of your sisters, my loved one, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with her thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for ball. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all of her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the balls. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. It's an accusation. It's an indictment of the nation of Israel. Her children are the children of adultery. She has been unfaithful. She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water and my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink, not crediting God. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold. And then she used them for ball. She burned incense to the balls. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. What do you think verse 14 says? What would you do? What would you do if that was your spouse? The right answer, right? If your husband or your wife acted this way, if they had children of adultery, if they chased after other lovers, if they refused to acknowledge you, if they took the provision and the gifts you gave and used it to worship other gods, if they burned incense to demons, they got all dressed up with rings and jewelry to pursue adultery. The right answer is bitter, angry divorce. That's the answer. You leave that lion cheating two-time and double-dealing, mean-mistreating son of a motherless goat to rot. That's the right answer. That's not God's answer. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came out of Egypt. Romans 5.10 teases this out. This is the heart of God. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Ephesians 5.25-27 gives us another picture of God's love for us. Says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Ephesians 2 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. And then it finishes with what we read already. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. That's how much God loves you. That's his love that while we were rebellious, while we were adulterous, while we were chasing after every other thing, while we still chase after every other thing, while we treasure other things, while we think everything else is precious, while we ply our time distracting ourselves with meaningless things, where is his heart? He's chasing after us pursuing us, it's wooing us, it's alluring us back so that we can be made whole with him. So what is your response to that? You who have made your commitment, you who have been baptized, you who have been washed by the water, you who said, I take Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. What's in your heart? Do you prefer something else to Christ? Do you long for, pine for something else this last thing is um, it's a good illustration but it hopefully drives home the point of our hearts because here's the thing is that at the bottom line at the end when we devote ourselves to Christ it's really kind of selfish there's part of it that is really kind of self-serving but here's the thing is that 
And I dare you, you can do this right now, guys, because I can make you embarrassed. Just turn to your wife right now and say, hey, uh, you want to go on a date tonight? Because there's absolutely nothing that I would rather do tonight than to spend time with you. There's absolutely nothing that I would rather do in this life than to spend time with you. I don't care what we do. I just want time with you. You uh, think she goes, man, you're selfish. Man, how dare you? How dare you want to do that? How dare you want to take that time, you meanie? That isn't the response at all, is it? Because when we say we love you and we want to spend time with you and we want to dedicate that time, it honors them, doesn't it? We're saying, no, this is what's pouring out of my heart, that I want nothing more than to be with you. And you honor them. So when we say that to Christ Jesus, when we say, I want nothing more, God, than to be with you, it honors him. That's the worship that we offer up in our hearts and in our lives. John Piper was a fantastic quote from him. He says, when you stand before God on the last day and he asks you, why are you coming in here? You better not say, it's written in the book. We're supposed to. It's obedience. And hell is hot. Those are bad answers. They don't honor God. The answer that honor him is, where else would I want to be? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You are my treasure. You are the end of my quest. You are the fountain of life. You are the river of delight. I want to be with you forever because you alone satisfy me. That's the answer. That will lift him up. A smile will come across his face and he will feel that you just worshipped him beautifully. That's what Sunday is for. It's what devotions are for. It's what systematic theology is for. So if Christ is not precious, your heart does not long for, does not ache for his presence, if you are not satisfied in him, your relationship with Christ, it takes work. It takes commitment. And we show what is in our hearts. Right? We put it in your bulletin. It's Acts 2.42. When we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Amen? Let's pray and then let's go hang out together. Father, create in us a new heart. We are earnestly seeking your face, Father, that our preference, that our taste, that our passion would be turned to you. That in our lives, we would prefer nothing more. That we prefer nothing over. That we would desire nothing more than we desire you. Father, please turn your face toward us. Shine your countenance upon us. Father, we we lift up our lives to you. Please correct us where we need to be corrected. Please discipline us where we need to be disciplined. Please keep us on your path. We know it is narrow and difficult, and we know that we can get bogged down by the all of the things of this world, all the distractions and all the things that we see are temporary pleasures that are so alluring. Please keep our eyes on you. Father, we 
lift up our children, especially to you. We lift them up to you for health and protection and guidance. Please help us to be good stewards of the gifts that are our children and grandchildren. Please just keep them safe. Father, we uh, are seeking to be a church that's on your path. We are seeking to be about your business. So in that vein, Lord, please provide for us. Please correct us. Please give us courage and strength to help when we can. We ask all of that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who, Father, we can just use a little bit more of him. go hang out. I think there's still coffee. And I know there's a bunch of produce in